Thank you. It is a joy this morning for us to look at the, the last and the great final sola of the Reformation, Soli Deo Gloria. I invite you to turn with me back to Ephesians chapter 1. In God's providence, Paul and I selected the same text, but as we compared notes, uh, we, we, as expected, found there's far more here than two messages can cover. So I think when I preached through this text in my own church, it took about 10 or 12 messages. So there, there's plenty of truth here for two. We look forward to uh, working through this text together. You know, as we think about this issue of Soli Deo Gloria, we have to understand that we live in a world and among people who are naturally bent against it. Perhaps no ancient idea more shapes our own world and our own thinking than that of the Greek philosopher Protagoras. Protagoras was the father of agnosticism and consequently the father of moral relativism. Protagoras wrote this, of all things, listen to the statement now, of all things, man is the measure. Of all things, man is the measure. That is the ultimate statement of human autonomy. Man is the measure of everything. He determines both what reality is, what morality is. He shapes everything. Man, in fact, by Protagoras's philosophy is at the very center of the universe. The people of Athens who were attracted, Paul tells us, uh, Luke tells us rather in Acts 17, to all kinds of new and strange ideas, different sort of philosophies. The people of Athens even saw the bankruptcy of Protagoras's ideas. They threw him out of the city and they burned all his works. But tragically, his ideas are still very much alive and well. The, the stepchild of his philosophy is in fact humanism, which assures us that man is the center of the universe. Reduced to its simplest expression, it teaches that the end of all being is the happiness of man. The end of all being is the happiness of man. In everyday language, it really is all about me. Although philosophically our culture has moved way beyond humanism, practically it still continues to permeate our culture. And the reason is because it resonates so deeply in the fallen human heart. It is part of our fallen condition as human beings to think that the world revolves around us and that it exists for us. When we start with man as the center, it's easy for us to allow that to influence our thinking even in reference to God. We can quickly conclude that even God exists for us, that the chief end of God is my happiness. Spurgeon said this, he says, I learned when I was a boy that the chief end of man was to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But I hear now, according to the new theology, that the chief end of God is to glorify man and enjoy him forever. This is the turning of things upside down. He's absolutely right. It, it turns upside down the reality because Scripture declares that God's chief end is not your happiness or mine. 
It is his glory. Many Christians have unwittingly sort of adopted this humanistic idea that man is the measure, and it's produced tragic results in the church. Just take, for example, the current gospel that is typically believed and presented by the average Christian. The typical presentation of the gospel makes God's great eternal plan of redemption primarily about us and our happiness. Instead, the overarching message of Scripture, the overarching theme of the Bible is this. God is redeeming a people by His Son, for His Son, to His own glory. Let me say that again. The overarching theme of God's Word, the message that you should always see there, wherever you turn, is this. God is redeeming a people by His Son, for His Son, to His own glory. We exist to promote God's glory. God didn't save you to make much of you. He saved you so that you would make much of Him and His Son. The church of Jesus Christ needs a Copernican revolution. We need to recover collectively as the people of God and individually the truth that God made us. He redeemed us soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. It was this message that was at the heart of the Reformation. There are so many places we could find it. Listen to the words of Martin Luther. Glory belongs to no one but God alone. It is impossible for God to share it with anyone and to make it common property. Through the evil spirit, Adam stole the glory and appropriated it to himself. In consequence, listen to this, in consequence, no vice has sunk its roots so deeply into all men as has the vicious passion for glory. No one wants to be nothing or to be able to do nothing. Everyone is well pleased with himself. Luther ends, from this, from this vicious passion for personal glory comes all the trouble, unrest, and war on earth. You see, soli deo gloria is not a, a sort of passing comment to round out the five solas. The reformers understood that if we contribute in the smallest way to our salvation, as the Roman Catholic Church taught and still teaches, then God rightly gets most of the glory, but we deserve some. If, on the other hand, we contribute nothing except our sin, then God gets the glory alone. You can see how soli deo gloria fits with the other solas because believing the other four will ultimately force you to soli deo gloria. It's why it rounds them out. Think of it this way. When Scripture alone leads you to embrace salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, 
based on the work of Christ alone, the result will always be glory to God alone. But when Christians and churches drift from soli deo gloria, when they drift from this understanding that God has acted for his own glory, they will eventually abandon the rest. And the truth of soli deo gloria is everywhere in the scripture. There are several key texts that we could turn to this morning. But no text is as rich in its theology or as sweeping in its scope as Ephesians 1, where we're going to look this morning. Just to give you the larger context of this passage, the theme of this letter, and I think I could defend this to you if I had time to do so, read the first half of Ephesians and you'll see this theme repeating itself again and again. The theme of this letter is the eternal plan of God. You see it in chapter 1 in this passage. Again and again, we, we read about God's will, his purpose, his intention. You come to chapter 3, verse 11, and I love the way Paul puts it there. He says, God is at work in accordance with, and it says in our Bibles in 3.11, the eternal purpose, literally in accordance with the plan of the ages. The plan of the ages, which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So understand then that the theme of this letter is the eternal plan of God. God has a blueprint for time and eternity. And in chapters 1 through 3, Paul explains the plan. In chapters 4 through 6, he applies the plan. Chapter 1 through 3, doctrine. In fact, in those first three chapters, there's only one imperative. And it's in chapter 2, verse 11, remember. But you come to chapter 4 through chapter 6, and there's imperative after imperative as he, impl- as he applies the plan. Now, in the very first sentence of the body of this letter, Paul presents for us what is really a majestic summary of God's eternal plan. After his introduction in verses 1 and 2, Beginning in chapter 3 and running down through verse 14, we have this summary of God's plan. It may be the richest, most profound sentence found anywhere in Paul's letters. And by the way, it is a single sentence. It is a microcosm of the entire epistle. It briefly explains to us the eternal plan of God, both for his son and for his people. The sentence begins, as Paul showed us a few minutes ago, with the Apostle Paul's own response to God's plan. And it is, he begins with this sort of spontaneous outburst of praise as he thinks about what he's going to write, about this plan of God. He just can't help himself. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's how the sentence begins. It is in our Bibles 12 verses and it is several sentences in the English text. But in the Greek text, verse 3 down through verse 14 is one very long sentence. Philip Schaff, the great church historian, said of this one sentence, it rises like a thick cloud of incense higher and higher to the very throne of God. Read this sentence 
and you will find yourself taken back into eternity past, into an agreement made between the members of the Trinity. It reaches forward into time. It reaches into our lives when the the eternal plan of God intersected with his redemption of us, that moment of our conversion when he regenerated us and called us to himself through the gospel. It stretches forward to the end of time when we receive our eternal inheritance. And it reaches even beyond that into the ages to come. It plunges us, this sentence does, into the depths of the fathomless ocean of the mind and plan of God. Although it's not actually a hymn, it's actually written in prose, it reads like a hymn of praise. And so this hymn, we'll call it that, this hymn can be divided into three units of thought or or three stanzas marked by a refrain or a chorus that Paul repeats three times. At the end of each stanza, Paul says, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. And each of the three stanzas here focuses specifically on the work of one member of the Trinity in your salvation. The first stanza in verses 4 through 6 explains to us the role of the Father in the eternal plan of redemption. He chose us in eternity past, and He blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The second stanza, in verses 7 to 12, explains the role of the Son. He came and accomplished our redemption through His perfect life and death. He becomes then, verses 7 through 12 remind us he becomes two things he becomes the mediator and redeemer and secondly as Paul reminded us again last hour he becomes the galactic center of God's eternal plan verse 10 says it is God's plan to sum up everything in and under Jesus Christ The third stanza in verses 13 to 14 explains the role of the Spirit. The Spirit personally applies the blessings that our Lord earned and won for us in his life and death and resurrection. He applies those things, the Spirit does, to those whom the Father chose, and he seals them and secures them so that someday you will stand before his presence holy and blameless and with exceeding joy. Each of these stanzas ends by affirming God's ultimate purpose in the eternal plan of redemption. God's great aim is his own glory. Now in the time that we have together this morning, I just want us to consider the first of these refrains in its context. Let me read for you again just the first few verses of this magnificent sentence of the Apostle Paul Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, 
He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Now in these verses, Paul, as I noted, highlights for us not the Father's only role in redemption, that's not his point, but one of the Father's roles in the eternal plan of redemption, and in a word, it is election. Now, this is what the Scriptures teach. I didn't grow up believing in election, but you have to deal with it. It's here in the text. You have to understand what it means Buried in these rich verses that we've just looked at are five features of election. My point this morning is not to deal with election. I just want you to see the flow of Paul's thought. Five features of election. First of all, he shows us that election is sovereign. Notice verse 4. God chose. God chose. The word means to select from among others. It's exactly like we use the English word. God chose. Election is sovereign. Secondly, Paul tells us election is specific. God chose us. If you're in Christ, it's because God chose you. Election, thirdly, is in Christ. As Again, as Paul Washer pointed out to us, this is everything, and it's true with election as well. He chose us in him you understand that the only reason God chose you in eternity past is because he set his love upon you and he set his love upon you because he determined to connect you to his son your choice God's choice of you is connected to your connection in the mind of God to his son Jesus Christ what does it mean to be in Christ well it's such a rich concept it can't be fully fathomed but it means at least this To be in Christ, to be in him, means that God appointed him as your official representative. And everything Christ did and does, you get the credit for. Just like you got the blame for what Adam did. It also means that there is between your soul and Christ a, a vital living connection. The very life of Christ himself flows to your soul as the The vine gives life to the branches in John 15. There there is, as it were, a sort of divine umbilical cord that runs from Christ himself to your spiritual life. You are in Christ. Election is in Christ. God chose us in him. Fourthly, election is unconditional. Notice again verse 4, before the foundation of the world. It wasn't conditioned on anything you had done, anything you are, anything you will be. God loved you because he loved you. He set his love upon you because of who he is, not because of who you are. Fifthly, election is intentional. From the middle of verse 4 down through verse 6, Paul identifies for us three goals that God had in choosing you. Here are the reasons God chose you. Again, They're not the cause. The cause is in God himself. But these were the goals, the the ends for which he chose you. The first is your personal holiness. God chose you to make you like his son. 
Notice, he chose us in order that we would be holy and blameless before him. It's like Romans 8, verse 29, that says, those whom God foreknew, that is, those with whom God determined, predetermined to have a relationship, he also predestined. God predetermined your destiny, according to Romans 8, 29. And what was that destiny? To become conformed to the image of his son. God chose you unto personal holiness. God also chose you, he had another goal in mind, a second goal, and that was your legal adoption. He chose you, notice verse 5, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. It's amazing, isn't it? We, we talk about these truths and they, they can become pedestrian and, and sort of everyday matters. Think about this. You were the enemy of God and God set his love upon you not merely to bring forgiveness, not merely even to bring justification, but ultimately to make you his son or daughter and to love you in the same way that he loves his one-of-a-kind, unique son. Now, both of those are important goals that God had in election. It was very important to God that you would be like his son, that you would be personally holy. It was very important to God that, that he would adopt you and make you his child. But understand this, those were God's immediate goals. Neither of those was God's ultimate goal. Now you understand the difference. I want my girls to get a good education. I want them to, to learn a skill. But as a parent, those are not my ultimate goal. My ultimate goal for them is, is to grow up to love and to follow Jesus Christ. So I want you to notice the third goal that Paul says here lies behind sovereign election, and it is the ultimate goal God had in choosing you. It is God's own glory. Notice verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. God chose us to make us holy, and he chose us to make us his adopted children. But the ultimate purpose behind sovereign election is the glory of God. It's to the praise of his glory. Now, this same basic expression occurs two other times in this one Greek sentence. Paul repeats it three times at the end of each stanza, as it were, to drive home the point that behind the entire plan of redemption is this one ultimate purpose. Look down at verse 14, first of all. At the very end, it's, it's repeated. In terms of the work of the Spirit in our lives, notice, it was to the praise of His glory. But go back to verse 12, because in verse 12, at the end of the second stanza about Christ, Paul gives us the fullest expression of this phrase. He says, all the work of Christ was, verse 12, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. So when we interpret Paul's wording then, back in verse 6, in light of these other two times, and especially in light of the wording of verse 12, it's clear that God's goal could be put this way, that 
we, you and I, would bring praise to his glory. The Father chose us in eternity past, ultimately for this one great purpose, to display his own glory. Of course, this idea of God's acting for his own glory is so much greater than just the purpose behind election. God does everything he does for his own glory. Perhaps you've read Jonathan Edwards' great work, The Ends for Which God Created the World, and he says this, all that is ever spoken of in the Scripture as an ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. This truth, of course, permeates Scripture. God gets glory to himself by all he does, and he will not, according to Isaiah, share his glory with another. It's the reason God created the universe. Maybe you've heard Carl Sagan's comment about the fact that he, he looked at the vastness of the, the universe and all he saw was the insignificance of man. It's just like man to make it all about himself. It doesn't have to do with us at all. God created in order to put his greatness on display. The vastness of space is about God. Psalm 19 verse 1 says the heavens are preaching the glory of God. The reason God created you. Think about this for a moment. The reason you exist the reason you're sitting in this auditorium this morning with life, the reason you are here was for God's own glory. You remember the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? You remember the answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Is that biblical? Well, what better pattern could we have than Christ? Christ comes to the very end of his life and on the night before his crucifixion, that great high priestly prayer, in John 17, 4, Christ prayed this, Father, as he looks back on his life, he says, Father, I glorified you on the earth. That's why I was here, and that's what I did. You and I exist for the same great purpose. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, There is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and listen to this, and we exist for Him. The English Puritan, Stephen Charnock, put it this way. He said, listen to this, When we believe we ought to be satisfied, rather than God glorified, we set God below ourselves. We make ourselves more glorious than God, as though we were not made for him, but he for us. But the glory of God is not only the end for which God created the world and, and the end for which he created you, the entire sweep of God's redemptive plan has only this one purpose. Remember again, Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. It's why the Father chose you and blessed you with every spiritual blessing. Verses 7 through 12. It's why the Son came and purchased your redemption, accomplished the work in his life and death and resurrection. 
And in verses 13 and 14, it's why the Spirit has sealed you and secured you and will preserve you and present you before the Father someday in perfection. It's the ultimate end of everything. Turn to Romans chapter 11. This is another text that just screams soli deo gloria. It's a text I considered preaching on this morning. Paul ends the first 11 chapters of this magnificent letter in which he lays out the gospel he preached. And, and when he comes to the conclusion of having laid out the gospel for these people who, who had never met him and who he wanted to support him in his ministry in Western Europe, and, but they had never met him. They didn't know the gospel he preached for sure. And so we get this letter as a result. And, and when he finishes that, in the first 11 chapters, in verses 33 to 35, he just breaks out in a in a doxology of praise, verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. God's omniscience, his knowledge, and his wisdom, his ability to use that knowledge to work out a plan. How deep, how rich, how unsearchable are his judgments. The word judgments has to do with God's plans, his decrees, his purposes. How unsearchable are the plans and decrees of God and unfathomable his ways. The word ways has to do with the means, the mechanisms, the methods that God adapted and adopted to carry out his eternal plans and judgments. And Paul ends with this in verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. May it be so. Why should God receive the glory forever? Well, the answer is in the first half of verse 36. Because from him and through him and to him are all things. All things are from God. In other words, God is the one who both planned and created them all. All things are through him. That is, he accomplished them and sustains them all. And all things are to him. That is, he is the ultimate end for which he planned and accomplished them all. So understand then that it's in salvation, in justification, in your redemption it's God's glory. Now, think for a moment about how God planned salvation so that he alone receives the glory. It didn't happen by accident. Everything God does in the plan of redemption is, is crafted to this end. After all, it begins with the fact that it's revealed in Scripture alone. Remember 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. It's in the sacred writings. It's in the sacred scriptures you learn the wisdom that leads to salvation. And it comes, this, this salvation comes only to those God chooses to save. And he chooses to save, as we saw in Ephesians 1, only based on his sovereign will alone. It was accomplished, our salvation, by the work of Christ alone. He is the Redeemer. It's solely His work, His life, His death, 
It's based on the righteousness of Christ alone. In other words, solely that alien righteousness, that righteousness that's external to us that we receive as a gift, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It flows from the grace of God alone. We didn't initiate it. We contribute nothing. It's received by means of the gift of faith alone. And it altogether is the work of God alone. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says, By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. So why did God save us this way? Why all of the alones? The simple answer is found at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he says, So that no man may boast before God. Instead, as it is written, let the man who boasts, boast in the Lord so that God would get the glory. You are a saved, forgiven, justified sinner for one reason, soli deo gloria. Now since that's true, since you exist as a person, you were created, and since you exist as a Christian, you've been redeemed to this end to bring praise to God's glory I think it's important for us to step away from Ephesians 1 for a moment and ask two important questions. What is the glory of God? And how in the world do I bring praise to his glory? Nothing's more important. If this is why God created you, chose you, saved you, then you need to understand what it means and how in the world you can do it. So let's look at these questions. First of all, what is the glory of God? What is the glory of God? This basic issue is so often misunderstood. The concept of the glory of God originates in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word is kavod. The word literally means heavy or weighty. The New Testament word, the Greek word doxa, was built on and informed by this Old Testament word and its meaning. So when Scripture uses the word glory to refer to God, it always has this idea of the weightiness, the heaviness of God. You see, in Hebrew thinking, if something is light, it's worthless. Like the chaff, for example, that blows away when the wheat is winnowed. On the other hand, if something is heavy, it has value, like the heavier grain that falls back to earth. A person who has glory, or kavod, is a person whose character is weighty, excellent, great. Who he is, is heavy. Although it always has that basic meaning, when it's used of God, it has three related but distinct uses. and It's important for you to understand these. When the word glory is used of God, it means basically weighty in his person, but it it has three distinct uses. First of all, the word glory refers to the inherent internal weightiness or majesty of God. In other words, this is just who and what God is. Do you understand that God would be glorious even if his glory were never seen? Even if he had never created another intelligent being to see it and to praise him for it, he would still be glorious. Jesus made this very clear in John 17, verse 5, 
when in that high priestly prayer he said this, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before there was anything, Father, but us. You and I had glory. No one was there to see it, but God still had this intrinsic, inherent weightiness to his character. A second use of the word glory in reference to God speaks of the external manifestation of the weightiness and majesty of God. This is what is seen when God acts, when he puts who he is internally on display. God's glory is seen, for example, in the work of creation. Isaiah 6.3, the whole earth is full of his glory, or as we saw even in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens and, and the earth are all of creation declaring his glory. But, but God most clearly manifested his glory where? In his Son, in the incarnation. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory glory as of the only begotten from the Father. This is the external manifestation of the weightiness of God. The word glory is also used of God, thirdly, to refer to the honor and praise that intelligent beings ascribe to God in light of who he is internally and in light of the external displays in the works of creation and providence and redemption. To give glory to God, when we use that expression, giving glory to God or bringing glory to God or glorifying God, it is this third use that we mean. To give glory to God or to glorify God does not imply adding something to God. It is simply acknowledging and extolling what is true of God. That's why you have expressions like this from Psalm 29.2, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. What does this look like? I enjoy art. I do some oil painting. And I enjoy the amazing craftsmanship of the true masters. Michelangelo was one of the greatest of the Renaissance masters. Michelangelo was impressive because of his inherent talent and skill as a painter. And that would have been true even if no one had ever seen his work. But when I, as many of you have had the opportunity to do perhaps, walked into the Sistine Chapel and, and looked up, I saw the external manifestation of Michelangelo's inherent internal skill. But take it a step further. If I were to devote my life to studying his works enjoying them, telling others about him, trying to duplicate his techniques, I would be bringing glory to Michelangelo. That's exactly what it means to glorify God. It means to respond to the inherent weightiness of God's character, who he is, and to respond to the external manifestations of his greatness in his works of creation and providence and redemption, and to respond to them by studying him and thinking about him and loving him and enjoying him and praising him and telling others about him and his greatness and attempting to copy those virtues of his that I can, his, 
communicable attributes like love and joy and peace and holiness and righteousness and justice. That's what it means to glorify God. Now, that brings us to that second crucial question. We've seen what the glory of God is, but what do you do? Specifically, how can you bring praise to God's glory? Like many of you, I grew up in the church. I remember hearing sermon after sermon, hearing 1 Corinthians 10.31 quoted and requoted, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And I remember being told to do it. And I remember as a young Christian loving that idea and desiring to do it, but I was never told how. So let's consider how you and I can glorify God. There are a number of passages in Scripture that tell us specific ways we can glorify God. The English Puritan Thomas Watson lists 17 different ways in his excellent book, The Body of Divinity. But I wanted to search it out in the Scripture myself, and and so for my own sake, I tracked down every passage where this word group occurs And what I've tried to do is condense the many verses where Scripture tells us how we can glorify God to just a few basic categories for myself and for you. There are, I I think we can say, seven primary ways that you can glorify God. If you're a believer, you want to do this. How? Here they are, seven primary ways. Number one, Believe the bare word of God in the gospel. Believe the bare word of God in the gospel. I'm going to give you passages with each. We may not turn to all of them, but you can jot them in your notes. Romans chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. I'm preaching through the book of Romans in my church, and and I've just come through this passage. And and Romans 4, Paul is using Abraham's justifying, saving faith. When Abraham believed In rudimentary form, the same gospel you and I believe. He's using his faith as an example, and he says, when Abraham believed God, it gave glory to God. Listen, it gives glory to God when you hear the gospel of God, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and you take God at his bare word that he declares righteous the ungodly. It glorifies God. Number two, live to exalt Jesus Christ. God most clearly displayed his glory in his Son. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, The light of the knowledge of the glory of God, as Dr. MacArthur showed us the other night, shines in the face of Jesus Christ. Until you're willing to bow to Jesus Christ as Lord, it is absolutely impossible for you to live to God's glory. Christ made this clear in John 5, 23. He said, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent me. Christ is where the journey to bring glory to God begins and where it continues. For those of us who've already believed in Christ as Lord and Savior, living for the glory of God means living to exalt Jesus Christ and his church look at Ephesians if you're still there in the book of Ephesians look at Ephesians chapter 3 verse 21 Paul ends this doctrinal section he ends explaining the great eternal plan of God 
with these words. Verse 21, to him, that is to God, be the glory. How? How does God get glory to himself in this eternal plan in the church and in Christ Jesus? You say, okay, Tom, but that was just true for the first century. No, notice what he says. God gets glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. Today, where is God getting most glory to himself in the church and in Jesus Christ? If you want to bring glory to God, you need to get on board with God's agenda. This is where he's getting glory to himself We have to have one all-consuming passion, a passion for the glory of God. And the New Testament makes it clear that means we must live for the glory of Christ and his church. Remember, this is the end of God's plan. If you go back to chapter 1 of Ephesians and verse 10, remember God's plan is to make Christ the galactic center of the universe. Let me ask you, can you honestly say, Can you honestly say before God that you live to exalt Jesus Christ? And can you say even in your college years that you are investing your life in the church of Jesus Christ? If you want to live for the glory of God, you will live to exalt Jesus Christ and you will live to invest in his church. Thirdly, if you want to glorify God, you will constantly offer your praise adoration and thanks to God praise thanksgiving glorifies God again just a couple of examples second chronicles chapter 5 verse 13 when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify the Lord and when they lifted up their voice accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music And when they praise the Lord, saying, He indeed is good, for his steadfast love is everlasting, then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with with the glory cloud, the presence of God. Praise glorifies God. Psalm 22, verse 23, You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. The nature of Hebrew poetry and parallelism makes it clear that to praise God is, in fact, to glorify God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul says, May the grace spreading to more and more people, listen to this, cause the giving of thanks, and when thanks is given for God's redemptive work in the lives of people, he says, it abounds to the glory of God. Think about this. Every time you and I truly lift our hearts and our voices in praise and adoration and thanksgiving to God, we are glorifying God. That's why you ought to sing out when we sing in your own private praise and together with other believers. Do it from your heart because it glorifies God. Number four, determine to live for God's glory. Determined to live for God's glory. It's a decision that must be made at some point for the first time, but then reaffirmed every day with every decision. John Calvin said, There is scarcely one among a hundred who makes the manifestation of God's glory his chief end. You be the one. 
you be the one among a hundred. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Let's think about that for a moment. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. It's in the context of issues of conscience. And Paul says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What is Paul saying? Paul is calling for you, Christian student, to make a decision to live for God's glory, even in how you exercise your Christian liberty. You have to, you have to decide to bring glory to God. This doesn't happen without that. Thomas Watson writes, aim at the glory of God by preferring his glory to all other things. Stephen Charnock says we cannot actually glorify him. Listen to this. We cannot actually glorify him without direct aims at the promoting of his honor. We are spiritual when we have the same end in our redeemed services as God had in his redeeming love, his own glory. You see, you can't accidentally give glory to God. You can't accidentally glorify him. You must determine to do it. David did this. By the way, that's what made David a man's, man after God's own heart. You ever wondered why God calls him a man after his own heart? It's because David had one passion, and that was for the glory of God. So when it came time to act, it just came out. In that confrontation with Goliath, which, by the way, has nothing to do with the defeating of the giants in your life. It has to do with God showing us what it's like to be a man after his own heart. David had a passion for the glory of God, like God has a passion for the glory of God. And in 1 Samuel chapter 17, it comes out in what he says to Goliath. In verse 46, he says, This day, this is to Goliath, This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands. I will strike you down, remove your head. I will give the dead bodies of this army to, of the Philistines to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth. Why? Was David out to make a name for himself? No, listen to this. Here's why. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that Yahweh does not deliver by sword or by spear for the battle is Yahweh's and he will give you into our hands. David gave glory to God because he had determined to do so. He was a man after God's own heart. Number five, pray for God's glory. Pray for God's glory. Pray in every circumstance that God will do that which will bring him the greatest glory. That's how Jesus prayed. In John 12, 28, as our Lord contemplated his coming crucifixion, he prayed, Father, glorify your name. And he taught us to, to pray the same way. In Matthew 6, verse 9, he says, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, may your name and everything connected with you be set apart and treated as holy. That's a prayer for the glory of God. You need to pray for the glory of God. And by the way, don't just pray generally. The Lord's Prayer is like an outline. It just is a placeholder to remind you to pray for this. Pray specifically. Lord, I want you to do in my life and my circumstances whatever will bring you the greatest glory. Give me outward successes or give me failures, whichever will bring you the greatest glory. Give me health or give me sickness. 
If it'll be to your great glory, send me to serve in obscurity in some remote and hard place or give me success I don't deserve. Whatever it is, Lord, do whatever you want with me. Just let me live for you. Let me live a full and long life or a short and difficult one. I just want my life to glorify you. Pray for God's glory. Number six, live a life of obedience and faithful service. Live a life of obedience and faithful service. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. And I, I think implied here is a lot of things, but certainly it's living out the character of the Beatitudes as well as living out the reality of our faith in other ways. And the result is that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Live a life of obedience and faithful service, and it brings glory to the Father. John 15, 8, my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Philippians 1, 11, when we are filled with the fruit of righteousness, it results in the glory of God. Number seven, find your greatest delight and joy in God. Sadly, our world tries to find its joy everywhere else. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And he concludes this way, we are far too easily pleased. If not by sin, we can be tempted to find our joy in all the stuff of this world. Do you understand? Do you understand true and lasting joy is found only in God? Psalm 16, verse 11, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Students, when we live like we believe that, it brings glory to God. Jonathan Edwards writes, the end of the creation is that the creation might glorify God. Now what is glorifying God but a rejoicing at that glory he has displayed? God is glorified not only by his glories being seen but by his glory being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. Let me ask you, do you really find your joy in God? Is there anything you delight in more than God? Is there anything on earth that you want more than God? It glorifies Him when we find our joy, our ultimate satisfaction in nothing but Him and in everything else only for His sake and because it came from Him. How can we glorify God? Believe the gospel. Live to exalt Jesus Christ. Offer praise, adoration, and thanks. Determine to live for God's glory. Pray for God's glory. Live a life of obedience and faithful service. And find your greatest delight and joy in God himself. Now very quickly, turn back to Ephesians 1. 
And look at verse 6. Paul says, God chose us to the praise of his glory. That's the thrust of his comment. But then he adds this, to the praise of the glory of his grace. You see, God chose us to manifest one aspect of his glory especially, and that was his grace. Please don't have a weak view of the grace of God, a view that demeans it. What is grace? We use the expression unmerited favor, and that's okay as shorthand, but please know it means more than that. Grace is not something God does only because we don't deserve it. Here's a definition. Grace is that quality in the character of God that causes him to delight in doing good, not to those who simply don't deserve it, but to those who deserve exactly the opposite. That's grace. And notice, it was to the praise of the glory of his grace. Nowhere in the universe is the majesty and weightiness of God's character more powerfully illustrated than in his grace in choosing the worst of sinners for salvation, in accomplishing our forgiveness and salvation through the sacrifice of his son, in making those sinners his adopted children, and in applying the work of Christ to us individually through the Spirit. That's God's glory shown in his grace. In other words, listen carefully, without your doing anything, but simply because of what God has done in saving you by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone, you bring glory to God. You put his magnificent grace on display for humanity to see, for the angels to see, for his son to see. Notice how Paul finishes verse 6. He says that grace he freely bestowed on us. Literally, the the Greek text says, the glory of his grace which he graced us with. And notice this grace is only ours because it's extended to us in the beloved, in the one he loves, Jesus Christ. Paul finishes this section by reminding us that the grace of election is ours only because of our connection to the unique son of his love, We have become the ones he loved because of the one he loves. By sheer grace, you and I have been caught up into the love that exists between the Father and the Son. Do you understand that you are a gift from God the Father, a love gift to his Son? And he gave you to his son. He has given a redeemed humanity to his son so that we would forever praise him and love him and follow him and so that for eternity, you and I as redeemed sinners would reflect the beauty and the glory of the moral character of Jesus Christ. Don't ever lose the wonder that God chose you as a love gift to his son all to his own glory. You exist, you have been redeemed to that great end. Look again at Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. You exist, you are redeemed solely 
Deo Gloria. Let's pray together. Our God, how do we respond to this? Except to, to praise you, to exalt you with our minds, with our hearts, with our voices, with our lives, with everything we have. Lord, may we live to the praise of your glory and thank you that simply because of what you have done, we are to the praise of your glory. We thank you, we bless you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.